Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. With the North American International Auto Show Media Week underway, we've got lots of journalists from around the country and indeed from around the world in town taking a look uh, at all of the cars, but also taking a look at Detroit. One of them, Dan Neal, is a Pulitzer Prize winning auto columnist with the Wall Street Journal. He joins me now to talk about what he's seen that's cool at the North American International Auto Show. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah. So I, I should say, I'm going to do a little bit of fawning before we get into the interview. You are the only auto columnist in history to win the Pulitzer Prize. I believe for criticism is what you won for. Is that right? That's right. But in fairness, that was before they drug tested the Pulitzer <laughs> jury. That's right. Now that now that could never happen. It's a right? much more tight <laughs> tight knit organization now. Yeah, but that, I mean that's a big deal. And I I will say that I was working for the Baltimore Sun uh, when you were working for the LA Times and and won the Pulitzer that year. And you were working at that time for a guy named John Carroll, who was the editor of the LA Times, who had been the editor of the Baltimore Sun. We were both people who I think uh, had enormous uh, career success for ourselves with John as the editor. Talk about that decision, though, to become an auto uh, columnist. That was not what you were doing. I mean, it, it, this is a, a sort of legendary story in journalism that uh, <laughs> that, that this happened to you. Uh, you mean the specific instance of being hired by John Carroll? Well, uh, being being moved by John into this into uh, this role. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, um, in uh, I, I started out, uh, I studied uh, art history. History. I have a master's in English literature, so naturally I was uh, prepared for <laughs> a life right. as an automotive critic. <laughs> and uh, but my father was an engineer, and, and we uh, I, I knew a lot about cars as a young person. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I started the work because I wanted to see the world, and I wanted to learn to write, uh, which is something that automotive critics uh, can uh, can be counted on to do yes. eventually. <laughs> and uh, so. Um, so I'd worked for a local newspaper called the, the News and Observer, and I was fired from that newspaper. Um, and this story, the short version of this is <laughs> that I, I wrote a story about uh, having uh, marital, not just marital, matrimonial <laughs> relations uh, with uh, with uh, my wife in, a, in an SUV. And, uh, um, and uh, that was a little bit over the line for Raleigh, North Carolina yeah. in those days. <laughs> And so I was asked quietly. I mean, everybody really enjoyed the column at the same time they wanted to uh, uh, picket the uh, – they were picketing the uh, <laughs> a newspaper. So um, so I was relieved of command. And uh, <laughs> then I went on to work for Car and Driver. And so – and I had had a pretty good uh, run with Car and Driver. But um, <clears throat> I was uh, I was in uh, France. I had, was in the middle of a divorce. I had no prospects whatsoever. And uh, I get this call from John Carroll. And John Carroll uh, had – unbeknownst to me, had been reading my columns from the News and Observer while he was uh, editor of the Baltimore Sun. They yeah. actually had them shipped up there, and he would read them, and he'd pass them around the newsroom. People would be astonished that such things were actually in print uh, because uh, I didn't have an editor, and it showed. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but lo and behold, they hired me, and 16 weeks later, I won the Pulitzer, yeah. and um, and so I've been trying to justify it ever since. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's really it's really a great story. I mean, it's one of those things that uh, you know suggests that when you get people in the right place uh, at the right time, you know, all kinds of things are possible. Oh, and Carol had a free hand in those days, and he hired those people, and then they went out and won uh, this year. I won five, five. Pulitzer Pro I prizes. 
And uh, so, uh, Mr. Carroll, besides being just the most courtly and wonderful and in- intelligent man in the world, was a real keen uh, gauge of talent. So a spotter of talent, yeah. uh, as, as always what I would say, except for, you know, present company excluded. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. So you were in town for the North American International Auto Show. Uh, tell me what you've seen. That's cool this week. Uh, well, uh, you know, my... Uh, my overall impression of the show is that uh, uh, we're really between two eras in automobility, uh, the legacy of internal combustion engines and gasoline and what comes next. Now, if you go to the show and talk to engineers and designers, everyone will tell you that electric mobility is next. The problem is there seems to be this very difficult to bridge gap between what is now and what is then. And the, the real issue is money. Uh, the, the, the automakers are, are practically schizophrenic on this subject because while at the same time they're you know, very high on uh, next generation mobility and EVs and plug-in hybrids, they're making more and more and more of their money on large SUVs and crossovers, which for people in Detroit and people in the auto industry uh, has a kind of a malign echo because we remember the last uh, time that General Motors was so reliant on the sales of these big SUVs and crossovers. Right. It, it, it was devastating when the, when gas went up and sales went down. And and so what's the – I mean if you go to the show, you see all of this, this sort of mobility question sort of floating around. Some companies seem like they're on it. Like I would say Ford is all about it mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, Bill Ford – who's uh, the chair of that company, talks all the time about this future as a mobility uh, company. But it does seem to be sort of confounding some of the others. They're not sure where they're going to fit in, right? Right. And I I think the uh, the issue is uh, simply a matter of cash flow. And may I also say quarterly expectations of rising return. Uh, Again, uh, General Motors has made itself a fool of Wall Street in uh, precisely the same formulation as last time. And uh, but they're not unique in that respect. I mean, the entire auto industry is a creature of spiraling expectations of return. And eventually, uh, in in a heavy industry, long term planning scenario like in the auto industry, uh, it it comes out of the product. Yeah. Um, So in some ways, I feel that capitalism, financial capitalism is failing the future in terms of automobility because really – we can either have uh, advanced tech, which we all need to uh, to uh, improve the Commonwealth, or uh, we can have yes, but we can't seem, uh, but we can't have those and spiraling profit margins right. on these vehicles. So that's uh, uh, that's one thing that's a, a big shift. Yeah, uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. Uh, I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dan Neal, an auto columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's in town this week for the North American International Auto Show. We're talking about the media preview of the show. It's taking place this week. Uh, the doors will open to the public on Saturday. Uh, we're talking about what Dan has seen that uh, that catches his eye or his fancy. This week, um, uh, you know, I want to I want to ask about the the numbers that we saw re- released recently that uh, we're at 17 million units sold uh, for auto companies in this country. Uh, you know, those of us who who live here in Detroit and lived through, you know, the brink of absolute collapse uh, in 2008 2009 would never in a million years have thought we'd get to 15 million units, uh, which we surpassed a couple of years ago. What's the what's the limit here? I mean, is this going to go on the way it is? Are we going to keep growing the number of cars that we sell, 
or is that uh, is that some sort of temporary spike that that could cool off at some point? Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, again just seems so clear to me is that uh, the automobile industry uh, cannot escape its own cyclicality. Uh, it is a boom and bust industry, yeah. and uh, and 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 it's not good for uh, it. Uh, there's a lot of breakage that comes with boom and bust, but we're at the top of the cycle now. 17.5 yeah. million vehicles sold in the U.S. in uh, 2016. So uh, uh, next year, that that number will soften, or it could collapse altogether. You know, um, uh, but you don't think it'll hit 18 or 19. If it ever cycles back up again, but you see there's some externalities that have changed the gross number of vehicles that we'll be needing in the future, and one of them is sh uh, shared mobility. Sure. Uh, and and, and the, all the uh, company futures have been debating how this will affect. There are some who predict that we will sell more vehicles. Maybe. Uh, but more likely uh, is that uh, um, fewer vehicles will be uh, sold. And when you have uh, your business plan tied up uh, in, a, in a big number like that, uh, then, you know, you're exposed. And, and General Motors has said, look, you know, we learned our lesson in 2008, 2009. We have reconstructed the business plan so we could get along with an 11 million vehicle SAR, right? We don't need more than that. Right. However, what they don't say is what kind of vehicles they would be selling in that 11 million uh, vehicles. And most of them are big trucks and SUVs. Now, they can survive with those profit margins, but they can't do it selling small cars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are we going to see over the next four years with the sort of manufacturing environment, the jobs environment, uh, given the the profound differences between uh, the way President Obama has had relationships with the auto industry and the way that Donald Trump seems to uh, seems to be at least forecasting that he will do it quite differently? Right. One thing that uh, as a as a frequent visitor to uh, Detroit and, and Michigan, but not a resident, I am astonished <laughs> at the short term memory uh, that oh, that Obama uh, that I mean, uh, he saved uh, he, uh, he saved these companies. That's right. Uh, and he saved, um, you know, millions of American jobs. And uh, and a little bit later, you know, his successor uh, would be successor <laughs> lost terribly to the worst <laughs> candidate on earth. So uh, uh, so that is a, and, and you asked about the next four years. Well, you know, the, the, uh, nothing really moves that fast. It, it, it would be hard to execute any big plans in a big uh, a, in a hurry. Like there's been talk about softening uh, cafe standards. Sure. That would be very difficult. Plus, there would be a lot of suits and, of course, there would be a lot of pushback because the vast majority of Americans want higher fuel economy standards, That's not right. lower. Yeah. Um, but one thing, I t clearly, when you go, when you go around this uh, show is the automobile is being held back by gasoline in a thousand ways. Uh, upstream, oh, downstream, and the vehicle itself. We can take each one of those individually, but let's just talk about the car. Uh -huh, the uh -huh. car, the automobile uh, running on an internal combustion engine has plumbing to keep evaporative emissions down. It has plumbing to reduce uh, 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 the uh, sulfur dioxide and, uh, you know, they've tried to squeeze as much efficiency out of the engine as possible. But in order to do that, it's required a quantum leap in complication, cost, all of that stuff. An electric automobile, architecturally and otherwise, is a much cleaner, it's simpler, simpler solution. Yeah. And so, as these requirements keep getting higher, I believe we've well we've passed the point of diminishing returns in terms of requirements of the uh, 
uh, on a gasoline. It's, it's got to go electric. Everybody knows it. Every engineer you talk to, you know, talks about thermodynamic budget, right. cost of, and complication of assembly, all of these things. So I think the breaking point has to come in the next four years. And I think one breaking point we can uh, sort of uh, point to is the Bolt. And uh, the uh, new smaller electric vehicle that uh, Chevrolet is uh, is about to roll out, right? That's right, and uh, it's a, it's uh, has a two hundred mile range, which was kind of the the minimum ante on yeah. this thing, and 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 it's affordable. You know, it's a steel structure. It doesn't break new ground in terms of body structure, but it does have a nice price tag, and it does have useful range. And I think uh, in the next couple of years, you're seeing these uh, battery-powered and plug-in hybrid cars with a lot more capacity. And I think it'll make a difference eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about the, what about clean technology um, as a mandate from from uh, the, the government? I mean, is that going to you know Trump is signaling that he wants to soften that? As you say, there'll be a lot of pushback. There will definitely be lawsuits. Um, what does the industry feel about that? I mean, we know that consumers want cleaner cars. What is the industry saying about what they're willing to do or what they want to do? Um, it, I think they really uh, are of two minds. When I say they, we're talking about auto executives, designers, engineers. Uh, the marketing guys, the people who sell the sheet metal, the dealers, you know, they've got a, s- a slightly different agenda. Sure. But on a strategic level, uh, uh, they are seeing that uh, <clears throat> the uh, – let me see. You want what, specifically? I'm asked a question. Uh, that that uh, what what do the industry guys say about this cleaner technology push? Do they want the government to back off, for instance, cafe uh, standards? Or? Uh, no, not really. I think that uh, because it is a long term uh, proposition uh, and heavy industry being what it is. Also, every one of those guys and gals are. Engineers. Right. Engineers are driven by efficiency. <laughs> uh, they are. Uh, they. It is in their blood to find the most effective and efficient uh, solution to any particular mechanical problem. They all get it. They all get it. They're just waiting for you know the the right battery to come along. Yeah. And as far as the clean technology, you know, I've had a kind of a change of heart, frankly, about carbon. Uh, in the in the atmosphere, because uh, it, surface transportation, private vehicles, about 0.6 percent carbon emissions globally, as compared to cement manufacture, right. which is like 30 <laughs> percent, right. and uh, in inter- inter- oceanic transport, which is about 25 percent. Wow. So, uh, but the uh, the the bigger problem is not carbon, but methane. In the past five years, we have seen. Just a, just a drastic increase in the amount of atmospheric methane, which is 80 times more powerful greenhouse gas uh, than uh, carbon carbon dioxide, and uh, and I so uh, so I think the real costs to the environment are extractive costs, and and from the Deepwater Horizon and sure. the Gulf and to the Amazon and everywhere in between is wreaking havoc on the ecosphere, and uh, and and automobiles would be better without it. Right. So, um, you know, I think that uh, in the next four years, that's, uh, that, that will uh, be uh, – I honestly think that the big changer will be a fourth and fifth year of highest global temperatures. We've had three years running yeah. of highest global temperatures, GM um, global mean temperature. Uh, a fourth and fifth year like we've had, uh, I think that that is really going to start convincing people. 
Yeah. Um, you talked there very eloquently and in detail about climate change uh, issues. That's one of the issues that's closest to your heart. Uh, anyone who reads your work knows that you you are, are really focused on that issue. That seems a little bit at odds with uh, <laughs> with your day job in, in the sense of uh, you cover an industry, as you point out, that is – uh, challenged by climate change and challenged to do something about it. Talk about how you sort of navigate that tension uh, in your work. Um, it, well, one thing is a sort of the the, uh, the the bright light here is that automobiles. I, I'm an advocate for better automobiles for consumers, uh, and in in my view, uh, that means electrification of the automobile. Uh, and the conversation, the colloquy between buyer and uh, critic. Uh, is uh, is about uh, telling people that there's a better way, and there's a uh, you know sort of letting them helping them balance those choices. Um, it it has been you know racing is very unpopular in Europe because of the uh, the green movement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot more public approbation of uh, of big cars and consumption in Europe and indeed around the world. It and that's something that uh, uh, that will come to America eventually, but it's not here now. Um, you know, I started out this job so I could drive fast cars and, you know, <laughs> see exotic places. Uh, and it turns out that the job happens to be in the center of history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, because nothing doesn't uh, – uh, 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 everything uh, depends on it, like trade, uh, energy policy, um, uh, you know, all the uh, the technology and, and the social stuff, the um, uh, ride sharing and uh, um, automobility. All of those things are going to make a, a big difference uh, in you short know, time. I, I have to say that I feel like the thing that will make the difference for, for instance, electric cars in this country, I think there are two things that people, Americans, really want from their cars. One is ease, right? They want it to be simple. I Go outside, turn the key, and drive it away. And every once in a while, maybe I'm going to put gas in it or whatever. If it has a key. Uh, if it has a key, right? Then <laughs> see, yes, this tells you how old my car is. I haven't bought a new car in seven years. So, <laughs> um, but but the other thing they want is cool. They mm -hmm. want a car that that goes fast or handles well or looks really great. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're not really seeing a ton of activity on that in electric cars. Elon Musk is. I think trying to push the envelope a bit, uh, but those cars are terribly expensive. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know many people who can afford them. I, I feel like until we get to that space where it's easy and it's cool, the electric car is always going to struggle. And is that cheap. Right? And, and cheap. cheap. That's right. I am not going to pay eighty thousand dollars for it. Right. You know, and I think that's uh, one of the unintended consequences of Elon Musk's approach with Tesla, which was to to pioneer the electric car in the luxury space, so that the luxury profit margins would finance uh, the development of a cheaper people's car. That was the theory. And uh, however, the unintended consequence was a sense that the, these were elitist vehicles. And when you walk across uh, to the Kobo Hall, you see that there are many, many really expensive plug-in hybrid electric yeah. vehicles. Well, they're not, they're not really making much in the way of uh, – they're not <laughs> evangelizing for EVs very well. Uh, you know, they're too expensive. Uh, that – the fact that they're too expensive is uh, primarily uh, the result of the cost of batteries – and uh, but battery costs are coming way way down, yeah. and so again, that's another precipice uh, in this story. You know, when batteries reach a you know a, let's say a, a dollar a watt, uh, they'll be uh, they'll be affordable, and you can build cars, uh, and, and it will 
they'll be cheaper than regular uh, internal combustion cars. That will make a difference. That'll make a difference. Uh, you know, the other thing I notice about electrical vehicles, you know, I lived on the East Coast for 15 years, uh, but I'm born here and I live here now uh, and I'm a Detroiter. You know, I notice, you know, we, we see cars differently here. Uh, we always have. And if you go to the East Coast, you don't see as many giant trucks uh, on the road as you do here. You see far more electric vehicles and things like that. I mean, there there is that cultural disconnect that I think sometimes we get caught up in here thinking that uh, the rest of the world looks like Detroit. Well, can I tell you, there are two things that I believe that uh, the, the manufacturers need to be uh, held to a social standard. Uh, it, it, this is a, it, this is a, an extension of the idea that corporations are citizens. If corporations are citizens, then they are bound by the obligations uh, of citizenry, yeah. and uh, which means that it, it may not be particularly profitable for them to pioneer this technology, but it is uh, the good for, uh, for all of us. And so I have said to manufacturers, I don't think the public should have a choice. I know that sounds very sort of Marx, uh, <laughs> sort of uh, Marx-Leninist uh, planning, but no, I, I don't think that uh, the public should have a choice. Uh, you don't get to buy uh, a defective or a leaky X-ray machines, right. for example. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so this is a product liability uh, issue. And the liability is that they generate, uh, uh, they use gas, which uh, uh, has uh, a lot of negative consequences. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dan Neal, Pulitzer Prize winning auto columnist, uh, now with the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for being here on Detroit Today. Oh, my pleasure. It's real nice to, to visit the studios. Thank Absolutely. you, Absolutely. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. We'll see you tomorrow.